You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with the Religica Theo Lab at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today we're in conversation with the Reverend Dr. Chloe Breyer, who has served as the director of the Interfaith Center of New York, ICNY. Since 2007, for more than 25 years, ICNY has worked to overcome prejudice, violence, and misunderstanding by activating the power of the New York City's grassroots religious and civics leaders. And under Reverend Dr. Breyer's leadership, ICNY has developed a pioneering curriculum in civics training for grassroots religious leaders and has built multi-faith advocacy coalitions, preventing biased crimes and promoting criminal justice and immigration reform. That's just some of what they do. I was thinking of Simon Sinek's work in 2009. It's a book. It's now it's it's in its 35th printing, so it's it's popular. But it notes that every great leader inspires everyone to take action by starting with why, and that's the title of the book. Start with why. So when asked, we typically go right to how or what we do. But I'd like to leave that aside and ask you, with all of the things that you are involved in and your commitments, what is Reverend Dr. Chloe Breyer's why in all of this work? Well, you know, I'm immersed in my kids' college applications right now. So I've actually, this is, (laughs) it's vicariously been on my mind. And um, my own why, I think, began in my family of upbringing and dinner table conversations that always focused on, you know, what was going on in current events and in our studies, and they often involve debates on certain questions. So I felt like I always had a, you know, a sort of a civic consciousness growing up and a sense of responsibility and uh, involvement in the community. And also, I suppose, from an interfaith household, I ended up majoring in comparative religion and government in college. And this was something that themes that intertwine throughout my entire life. And that is the civic involvement and our different faith traditions are not in conflict so much as very intertwined. And my own sense of calling to the Episcopal priesthood is part of that. And it, you know, emerged a couple of years after my graduating from college. And I went through the discernment process in ministry in the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., while at the same time started a magazine about public service initiatives that young people were doing in the early 90s. I went to seminary and continued to be socially active and socially involved. I did not see these things as mutually exclusive, which often they are sometimes, or often they are are posed as in opposition. Yeah, and I wonder, even as you're mentioning that from a young age, many people, perhaps when they think about this field, if they interreligious dialogue or interfaith engagement, perhaps they think it's just as simple as a compare and contrast. But the image I have from what you've just noted around a dinner table, growing up as a kid and as a young adult, to recognize even in an interfaith family, 
Was it your mm-hmm. experience that, you know, these values that you were talking about, it's not so easy as a compare and contrast. Instead, it's like each value has a nuance. It just kind of bursts forward. It has something to share and show about our humanity. Was it like that? Was it a deeper experience like that? Or is it something you look back now and think, oh, yeah, that was unique? You know, at the time, it was perfectly, it just seemed like it would be normal to have a Seder dinner, and then that would be followed by church and Easter and it sort of seemed of a piece at the time. And in some ways, you know, where I wasn't far off, but that was really more the experience is that the diversities of, of our particular families, faith traditions were part of the parcel. It wasn't a source of conflict or anything like that. We also talked about, uh, just so the listener knows your work over these years of interfaith dialogue, your regular travel to Afghanistan, including, as we noted, Uh, as a delegate in the American Women's Peace and Education, that delegation in March of 22. A bit of context for the listener, while the landscape prior to the Taliban takeover was problematic, the World Economic Forum, as I understand, in its 2022 Global Gender Gap report, noted that Afghanistan was 146 out of 146 for women's education attainment and economic participation and opportunity. I mention that only because... I think it might help for the listener to have a sense of the work you're doing and your level of commitment to the rights of women to determine their own destinies around education. What does this work mean for you in terms of your commitment to um, the rights of women and and in that particular region? Well, you know, again, I was part of our church, the Anglican Church Worldwide, had a, for many years, a delegation that would attend the commission UN commission on the status of women. And I was part of that for a long time. So that really helped me understand how rights around gender were again, connected to so many justice issues. I would say also when it came to Afghanistan, I was a chaplain down when right after 9-11 happened with maybe the year, two years after I got out of year after seminary. Mm -hmm. So it was like my first year of being ordained. And like many other New York faith leaders, I went down and volunteered with the Red Cross at, at Ground Zero and the morgue and it was out of that experience and and doing funerals and memorial services for people that I really came to think that there had to be some sort of higher, you know, some sort of consciousness or raised consciousness that came out of the tragedy. And that brought me back, brought me to Afghanistan and this initiative, an interfaith initiative to rebuild a mosque that had been hit. And I went back with September 11th families for peaceful tomorrows and just really fell in love with the country. And, Mm -hmm. The girls who at that time were doing maybe three years in one semester or in one year to kind of catch up from what they had missed when the Taliban was in charge the first time around. Mm-hmm. So after you know 20 years of work on girls' schools and helping to build two at least and a women's health clinic and being on the board of an NGO, it just was like... Yeah, it was really devastating, obviously, what happened in 2021. So that was what prompted me to join some other women from, you know, Masuda Sultan and Freeze to a couple of the founders of Women for Afghan Women and 
other folks who have been involved for decades in Afghanistan to go back. And we hoped it would be timed with girls going back to school in March. As it turned out, it was only the first eight grades of girls going back to school. And as we now know, the high school girls were not allowed to go back to school. And there's stories of or images of those girls turning around and having to walk back home. And anyone with a heart for empathy can imagine how devastating that was for those girls and young women who were planning on the next step for their lives. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. And we actually talked to a couple of girls who were athletes who were to take part in this uh, kind of after school program. And they had been, one was like a national track, you know, star. Another was a volleyball player. And they just described their lives and how difficult it is. The only community they had were these other in this, you know, after school program, which most girls didn't have at all. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And very depressing. But the women there are those who are remaining. Many of them are also just incredibly strong and dedicated people. So if they can do it, I guess we can continue on. Well, and maybe this also goes to your point, as you mentioned, of having a raised consciousness. I mean, that's tactile, right? It's not something, as, as you noted, after 2001, that is to be taken for granted. It can lead to tremendous activity in the world that you're describing now. And I wonder if that was also, in terms of your own race consciousness, something that was active in your decision in 2007 to accept the leadership of the Interfaith Center for New York. Yeah, it was a great opportunity that my predecessor, the very Reverend James Parks Morton, who was dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine for 25 years and started the Interfaith Center. And he really had a vision before Interfaith was kind of on the map that this was a, you know, an important thing for the city of New York. And I would say, having joined in 2007, I'm now in my 15th year, I just would underscore how critical cooperative work among grassroots faith leaders is just for the health of our civil society. There's really nothing like it. And it's a way into our diversity as a city that allows us to participate and to feel like we're part of a, a common, you know, no matter where we are, where we're from, our interfaith work makes our city richer and more meaningful. Is there a sense you also have in the greater kind of context of New York that what you just noted is true for the city, but it's also true as a model for other cities in the United States and indeed also throughout the world? Like there's a lot happening there that won't be precisely duplicated elsewhere, but the fabric of what's held in common, how dialogue can happen, the kinds of conversations around civic unrest, the way we can kind of find resolve and commonality. There's a lot that can be modeled and can be picked up in other places by trial. What are your thoughts on that in terms of that sense of social responsibility that transcends the city? Well, you know, I was, I took some courses from Professor Diana Eck, who oh, yeah. is it, uh, the plural, she started the Pluralism Project at Harvard University. And went around, she got a bunch of students like myself and some grad students. And we went off into the, into the wilds of 
the United States, and we documented the changing landscape, religious landscape, since 1964 immigration laws that allowed more South Asians into the United States. And my particular mission, if you will, was looking at the different sorts of Buddhisms in L.A. And there were more different kinds of Buddhisms in L.A. than there were in Bangkok, as we figured out. Fascinating. Everything, everyone, like Caucasian, Thai, Vietnamese, um, people from Laos. Cambodia, you name it. Anyway, so what she, you know, she came up with this really wonderful sense that, you know, the modern city has to have something that holds it together other than like the mall, Mm -hmm. you know, or in our case, the virtual mall. Like there has to be something beyond that. We're past, we're not at the stage where cathedrals, which used to hold the center of many European cities or the mosque in in predominantly Islamic countries, because we are now such a religiously diverse country, it's got to be something like an interfaith council of some kind. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of religious leaders who work together when they need to, to make their city a healthier place. And I think you see examples of that everywhere and across our country and often it's revealed uh, sadly when tragedy strikes but it's also it's there and it's you know one of the underpinnings of what what hold our urban centers together along with libraries and city hall but the interfaith council is a kind of central you know location of gravity around which our cities revolve. And that's certainly true in New York. That's what the Interfaith Center, what we do. One of the programs you also have at the Interfaith Center, I want to make sure the listener gets some sense of it and perhaps even a story from this institute that that stays with you that you think is you know just generative or exemplary of the work that gets done. But the Religious Worlds of New York Summer Institute that's run through ICNY, how many years has that been happening and what do you see as a kind of story of success through there that really exemplifies the things you've already been identifying in terms of the collaboration that can happen in local contexts? Yeah, this is a wonderful program that has been offered. We've done it about five times, I think, through, you know, usually every other year in partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities that supports it and Union Theological Seminary, where people stay. And my colleague, Dr. Henry Goldschmidt, will set up three weeks of curriculum development and teaching, like how do you teach educators, public, private, and parochial school teachers from all around the country, how to teach religion. These are not all religion classes. Some of them are anthropology or are global politics. How do you integrate the study of lived religion into curriculum? And if you're a public school teacher, how do you do so without violating the division between church and state or what's left of it? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That leads us into an entirely different conversation, doesn't it? (laughs) But anyway, so the point is that, so we'll have panels of different religious leaders. And then my colleague will take these teachers on school buses around New York City and we'll go to the biggest, the Ganesh Temple, which is this huge temple that you think that you're actually in India 
when you step foot in it in Queens, um, best South Indian food canteen in the city, or up to the Bronx, our, our Lady of Lourdes, the grotto there, and uh, Ganesh Temple. Oh, I mentioned the temple, but the mosques and so forth. So it's a way for people to kind of get a sense of how would you do a site visit. Mm-hmm. It was so interesting because we had one educator who was from a, who taught on an army base in South Carolina. And mm-hmm. I think this was like, like during the Trump time. Yeah. And she was like going back to her army base to teach about, you know, Islam and, and the places where there's much more sort of fear and prejudice than in New York. And and she was taking those lessons back to teach the kids of members of our armed forces. So that was pretty, pretty interesting. That's really interesting. Um, You know, as you were speaking, I was also thinking of the year that you began, I believe is the fall of 2007, when 138 imams released that global letter to Christian leaders, a Mm. common word between us and you. You remember that? I do. And we had a five-year project based on that, on a common word, because the GHR Foundation, which was the same foundation that funded a common word Mm -hmm. between us, gave us some money to do service partnerships between Catholics and Muslims in the Bronx, Manhattan, and Staten Island. And the stuff that people came up with was amazing. In the Bronx, like there was a a soup kitchen that was run by a mosque that we had all these Catholic volunteers. Then together they kind of did soliciting the census. They were volunteer census workers because they realized the reason, you know, the Bronx is like the lowest participation rate and the highest poverty rate of one of of anywhere in the country. And they realized they wanted to have more food security. They needed to like get counted. Mm -hmm. And this is stuff that people came up with together. And, you know, and we worked together on immigration and then in Staten Island, the kids like cleaned each other's houses of worship. And we had some families that didn't want their kids to go to a mosque, but then eventually they like, you know, changed their mind. And, you know, it's so it was really cool stuff, actually. Well, and this, I mean, back to your earlier point about raising consciousness, that just stays with me as well, because I think the examples you're illustrating here reveal how raising consciousness also leads toward creativity and creative outlets. And people will get together and work and produce incredibly important and relevant work for their communities in these really creative ways if they're given an opportunity, right, to do this. Yes. No, that's that's absolutely right. And actually, I mean, and what that this program to educate teachers on religious mm-hmm. diversity has kind of spun off to do the same for not quite as involved, but for social workers, for example, for law students, like we have a partnership with New York Law School that like educates law students on religious diversity and the NYPD. Mm-hmm. And we've had this video that has been, they've used for many years, but it hasn't been mandatory about the religious diversity of New York. And we're just like now finishing up a set of seven fact sheets about like seven big faith traditions in New York that they're going to have to, they will sign, that will become mandatory reading along with the renewed version of the video. And this is great because police have so much power to kind of lead the rest of the population in what is, you know, what is scary and what is not scary. And if the police are 
buying into, like, for example, the post 9-11 stereotypes mm-hmm. about Muslims and terrorism and so forth, then everyone else is going to as well. Mm-hmm. And so it became really important for us to try to dispel, just sort of dispel. And I think there has been a big move, actually, for the positive. See, we've gone through two commissioners since 9-11, three commissioners, actually, two mayors. And now there's a thousand members of the Muslim Officers Association. There's a Sikh Officers Association. They can like, there's prayers that happen in one police plaza. Like the the diversity of the NYPD is pretty, it's really, you know, changed. And I think there's a kind of sense of awareness there that certainly wasn't for a while. One of the things that I notice in our work here on the other side of the coast, but I think it's relevant and true and shared in the sinews of this work across the country and in the world is perhaps beyond the why in terms of the so what factor, like, so what, why does all this matter? Why are we doing this? And perhaps in the end, it's not about the kind of technical or even adaptive changes. It's about transformation, I think, as you're describing it. I mean, it's about transformed relationships, transformed heart and mind leads to transformed structures, transformed perceptions and policies that create a a better world. But I want to ask you this next question as well, when it doesn't go so well. And it reminds me of a bestseller by Susan Scott called Fierce Conversations, where she says part of our problem today is we have to come out from behind ourselves and make room for conversations that get real in society. So let's talk about the other side of this equation today, because the other aspect or the other side of something you've also alluded to is is what's not going well. The rise of populist movements in the country, of identity, religious-specific nationalist movements like white Christian nationalism. We can name more, but we seem to be hiding perhaps from ourselves, from one another. I might be a form of societal cowardice for hard conversations, masquerading as a kind of strength. What are we hiding from in these movements, do you think? And what do we need to get real about? And what concerns you most about this today? I have to say that I do think that just the the technology of our communication has outpaced our kind of moral sense of of how and why we communicate. I think that we, you know, the the kind of all the things that the film, the social, what is it? What was the name of that film that was like about why social media is so bad? I can't recall. I do. I just can't recall the title either. But there are a number of these out there, right, that are helping describe the context of how what you're describing, how we're getting outstripped by the media that defines the message, right? Yeah. Right. And just that the it's really the profit motive that is governing our public discourse yeah. in the form of having these large tech companies primarily put in front of them what is profitable versus what is right. And, you know, the same, the rules that for centuries, not since centuries, but for years have kind of governed discourse in our public square and what constitutes fair discourse, what constitutes dangerous discourse. You know, we had a whole like years of court decisions and legislation to kind of hash that out. And suddenly I feel like it's all gone to the gone to the winds because yeah. there's this technology that people don't understand that we're all addicted to and that it that thrives on conflict. Yeah. It sets the condition, doesn't it, for conversation? Like we have to be yelling at each other in order to have right. any kind of discourse of value. Right. No, I mean, it, it's, it's undermined years of 
dialogue and partnership and sort of a sense of agreed norms of how you agree to disagree, which is perhaps the most important thing in mm-hmm. interfaith dialogue and possibly any kind of dialogue. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> At least agree on, on what you do when you disagree Yeah, and then move on. Yeah. So I can't blame technology enough. <laughs> Maybe it also does something else that is so distracting is it it doesn't allow us we lose our capacity or maybe it diminishes our capacity to get out of our own emotional wake. Like someone may say something that really upsets me, but it's not their problem that that's taken place. Like I have a moral, I have a moral responsibility to get out of my own emotional way in those moments. Don't I, I mean, I, I have to stay in the conversation. There's lots that doesn't please us in the world. Well, welcome to the real world, I suppose. But we've kind of become much more, maybe thinned out a little bit in terms of our capacity to differ in way, the way you're describing. So a question about the commons. Are we healthy enough to face the challenges of the moment? And I want to ask you that question, but I, if I may, I just want to say something that I think might be helpful to it. And I, I'm really asking myself this question too, and, and a number of our listeners have asked as well. To your last point, there seemed to be an optimism and people like Kofi Annan, even as late as 2013, they would look out at what they, what Henry Mintzberg called the, the plural sector, like just give it enough time. Those people who aren't owned by the private sector or the public are going to rise up in this movement. They're going to face the big moral challenges of the moment, like climate destruction and other things. And we're going to take this back ourselves. It seems like that hope is not materializing in the way that some of those leaders thought. That's one way of putting it. I'm not naturally a skeptic. I'm just wondering where those voices are in a field like you, where there's lots of engaged energy. There's lots of raised consciousness. I don't want to diminish that. Okay, to the question, what's the strength of the commons? What do you think? Well, you know, I sometimes go on long drives up to visit family or what have you. And I've been I spent about six months listening to Nelson Mandela's autobiography, uh, Long Walk to Freedom. And it was a a long book to listen to, too. But it was amazing in terms of what it showed about his unbelievable focus, like his focus over decades and his faith that he was going in the right direction despite every indicator to the contrary. And I think like you got the first 16 hours of this audiobook were, you know, him growing up and the Ravona trials and, you know, getting thrown and whatever. Not until the middle, like hour number 17, did he enter what was it? Yeah. Robin Island. And like that was like yeah. his 50s. And what was so extraordinary was that once he got to Robin Island, he completely shifted his framework to actually address the injustices on the island. Like he didn't try to run, it seems like he didn't try to run the anti-apartheid movement from prison in the way that you might be able to do these days with online communication. But he really focused on like, it took him three years to get them to stop making him wear shorts because the Africans had to wear shorts and the you know Indians had to wear long pants, but like, or change the food. That was a five-year struggle, you know? So, and it's like, it just is a reminder of how much patience and how we have to claim these yeah. tiny victories, not that they are an end to themselves, but that they're real. 
And, you know, we know what happened when he got out of prison 25 years later Mm -hmm. is the world changed Mm -hmm. and he was part of it. So it just was like, I think it's a great reminder for people, for all of us who feel Mm -hmm. like somewhat hopeless, listening to the news or what have you. We're in it for the long game. We have no, we have no other Mm -hmm. option. And um, we've got to take the victories that we can. And that doesn't necessarily mean one has to be a kind of terminal optimist. That's not what it's about. I hear you saying there's a difference between, say, hope and optimism. There's this kind of generative hope that just can't be extinguished in the way that Nelson Mandela apparently did not allow it to be extinguished. And in all of the kinds of leaders that we might identify who have inspired over the generations, as you're describing. Who's the leader who stands out most for you that inspires your work going forward? Yeah, I have to say that some of these women right now in Iran, you know, just the courage that they are showing by making these like unfathomable acts of of bravery and that they are putting themselves at huge risk to do this, but are also articulating a new wave of a kind of popular resistance that's been going on in Iran. Yeah for 40 years. And it is like the next chapter and God willing, it'll, it'll be the chapter that, you know, makes a difference in terms of the regime. And if it doesn't, then the next one will, you know, it's just, it's, uh, these, I am so inspired by them. Yeah, obviously. Would you say that there's something that any society watching this unfold right now could learn? There were three things or three values and you were around that dinner table that you described growing up as other kids are today with their parents and having perhaps similar kinds of conversations. Courage. Courage as a transferable value that all of us could learn from if we're watching this. I might add resiliency and, you know, and the fact that resiliency isn't a singular option. It it requires all of us. It's like it's sinewed between us. It requires community. It it searches for others. It needs company. What might be a... no, that's totally correct. And I think also, I mean, one thing that was, that is, it's not as apparent right now because we don't know exactly what's going on over there, but the degree of strategy that people like Mandela and King were able to engage in, and also in the women's movement too. I mean, the, you know, Gloria Steinem and everybody who was part of that first wave of yeah. mostly white feminism, but not entirely and the strategic decisions that they made about how to kind of move the movement. I think that that maybe we've seen like a lot of popular uprisings happen quite quickly around the world, again, by virtue of a lot of the new, you know, of social media, but the ones that are hopefully going to make a difference are those that will have a degree of strategizing around yeah. them as well. So I think that's still unfolding in the case of Iran. So we've talked a a lot about different ways in which consciousness is raised in terms of our work, your directorship, for instance, in ICNY, and also the programs therein and the ways in which, you know, the so what factor for transformation can lead to all kinds of creative output that just given a chance, people will engage and even the question of what are the values that should be shaping us, as you've just described examples from Iran and women leading there, as well as in Afghanistan. When we have a discussion about the commons, 
it leads also to this other discussion around the health and vibrancy of our current democracy. And what's happening today in the kind of tendrils of democracy that make it feel as though there's a brittleness, lots of people are talking about this, but I'd really like to hear, and I, I know the listener would benefit greatly from getting your sense of what's transpiring in democracy today, in our democracy, and what do you see as both what's most worrying and and also, in addition, what we need to know that could be you know, potentially hopeful in, the, in a similar way as you just described about the value of courage? That's a great question. I can, again, answer from my perspective in New York and our, our work in interfaith dialogue and interfaith partnerships. And just, you know, one example that comes to mind was that for 10 years, many members of Muslim communities were pushing for a two Eids to be holidays in New York public schools. And they pointed out, you know, that Muslim families are now 10% of families that are part of the biggest public school system in the country. And that, you know, it's too bad to have to choose between important holiday and, and going to school, and they shouldn't be in that position. And what we found was so interesting is that many non-Muslims joined this campaign, recognizing that they too would not want to have to choose between their family's values and religious practice and um, going to uh, missing any part of the school day for their kids. And you had these incredible coalitions of like religious freedom folks. You had other immigrant groups, Hindus, Buddhists, and joining um, until under de Blasio, the bill passed making the second holiday, um, uh, second Eid a holiday. And I think what that shows, that particular campaign, is that when democracies are healthy, we recognize that it is sometimes the people who are most different from us that can be our greatest allies when it comes to pushing legislation that's not only good for us, but also good for our community. And that it's not a zero-sum game, and that it's important to know the difference between our, our private and our public lives. And when you're in, in public as a democratic citizen, you recognize that you, you know, share some things in common and something's mm -hmm. awfully different. And that's what interfaith dialogue always teaches us. But I think it's a good lesson for democratic citizenship as well. Yeah, thank you. And also to your earlier point about patience and perhaps even relearning how to listen really effectively to what others are saying. We have really been listening to you. We're with the Reverend Dr. Chloe Breyer. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.